Welcome, NEC fans, to the NEC Overtime Podcast. This is our Made in the NEC series, and we have a special guest today. I'm really excited about this. We have former NEC commissioner John I. Marino, who's with the league from 1997 to 2006. John, thank you so much for making some time in your schedule to join us. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Ron. Good to see you again. Good to, to talk with you. Awesome. All right. So, you know, we'll talk about we've had a long history together and um, I want to talk about your time in the NEC, which was really special um, to me. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning first. Uh, you know, you, you, you grew up in, in Monsey, New York. So, you know, you're from the area up here in the Northeast. As you were growing up, what role did sports in your life play? And, you know, was there a sport that was your passion growing up? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, from uh, from the time I was uh, old enough to follow uh, sports, you know, I figured I was going to wind up playing shortstop for the Yankees someday. And uh, when that became evident that it wasn't going to happen, I figured the next best thing would be to stay in sports somehow. And so my original thought was to combine um, an aptitude in journalism with sports. And so I went from college I uh, worked on a, uh, a newspaper in uh, White Plains, uh, New York, and then uh, from there got offered an opportunity to interview for a sports information position at Georgetown University. Um, went down there, interviewed, was able to get the job, and that's how I got into college athletics. And basically, I moved up from, from sports information field to administration uh, I joined the, the Sunbelt Conference um, in, um, in 1984, uh, which is a long time ago now, as I think back. But uh, I, I, that was my entree into conference work. And then I went from the Sunbelt uh, eventually to the NEC and then from there finished up at the Southern Conference. All right. So you, you zoomed about 25 years in, in one <laughs> answer there. So I had some things along the way that I wanted to get to. Sure. So, go ahead. Let's, let's review. <laughs> when I think it's sometimes, I always appreciated that you were an SID first. So you kind of understood me and that profession. And I think that sometimes those in, in the communications field feel a little frustrated in there trying to pivot to administration. How, how hard was that for you to go from the, you know, the stats guy at one point in your life to being an administrator for the Sunbelt Conference? Yeah, I, I distinctly remember the conversation. Vic Bubis was the commissioner at the Sunbelt Conference, former basketball coach at Duke. And he, he sat down with me and we had the opening for assistant commissioner. And as you said, I had been doing the stats and doing the publications and, you know, promoting the league. And he said, uh, you know, here's an opportunity instead of dealing with, you know, SIDs and writers and, and broadcasters, you're going to have to deal with athletic directors and coaches and administrators. But I think you can do it. What do you think? I, I need to know because otherwise I've got to hire somebody. And so I thought about it for a couple of days and, and said, you know, it would be a good opportunity to try something different. Um, I enjoyed publicity. I enjoyed working as a sports information director. One of the things that started to get to me a little was the constant cycle. You know, certain months of the year, you know, okay, I've got to get the baseball guide ready. I've got to get all the rosters gathered together to, to include them. Um, you know, back then we weren't using, you know, I wasn't using the internet or anything like that, but it was a very cyclical uh, existence. And so I, I thought it would be 
kind of uh, interesting to try something different, still staying in college athletics. I liked working in a conference, so I wanted to stay there and, and I was able to make the transition. So what was it? There's a big difference between working on campus and working in a conference. You spent you spent 35 years of your career working in conferences. What was it that made that, um, you know, a uh, priority for you? Yeah, I, you know, every everybody I've ever interviewed for a position, I've told there's a big difference between working on a campus and working in a conference office. And some people like it and some don't. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that it was more I felt more like a uh, a professional um, executive, so to speak, because I wasn't walking down the hall talking to coaches and I wasn't seeing athletes, you know, coming through from the field into the offices. Not that I, I didn't mind, I didn't mind that when I was at Jacksonville and Georgetown, but I just felt it was a little, a different level and, and it worked for me. I, I liked the idea of representing all the teams in the conference. Um, and I didn't need the constant interaction of having to root for one team or getting to know coaches, you know, at one school or certain athletes. So it, it, it's not for everybody, for sure, but I enjoyed it and I was able to make the transition really without too much trouble. So you so from there, you spend 13 years in the Sun Belt. Then the NEC opening happens in, in uh, 1997. What appealed to you about this job? And was being a commissioner your goal at that point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, uh, there were two things that really appealed to me about the NEC. Number one was uh, being able to run my own shop, being able to be a commissioner after having a lot of years of um, you know, dealing with athletic directors towards the end, dealing with presidents, working on budgets, uh, working on championships, promotions, marketing. I even did, I must have been the world's worst compliance office. I called the NCA constantly <laughs> to get answers, but I didn't get anybody in trouble. So, but I had experience in a lot of different areas when I was at the Sunbelt. And so I felt like I was ready. So that was number one. Number two was I was really enthused about uh, the idea of going back to the New York area uh, where I grew up. So that the, the, the uh, you know, I interviewed at the uh, Newark Airport Marriott um, and I thought I had a good interview, but I wasn't real confident in my uh, chances. So I, I remember on my way home, uh, I went in one of the uh, gift shops and I bought a little Yankee baseball um, because I said, you know, who knows when I'll be up in this area again so I'll buy this now, take it home with me back to Louisiana. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I got the call and, uh, you know, it was, I was really thrilled. So you get hired and you always, you've told a great story um, that I've heard. Your first day with the NEC, you get off a plane. What's that first day like where you're actually, you're in New York and it's all, it all goes down? Yeah, that was uh, that was one for the books. Um, you know, a couple of days earlier, we had run our basketball tournament in Little Rock, Arkansas, with the Sun Belt, and so I fly home uh, for a day to Louisiana, and then fly up to New York. Uh, the championship game was that night. Uh, LIU was a, a, a mega hot team at that point in the New York papers. They were getting all kinds of attention. Uh, so, you know, I show up, I take a cab to, uh, the, uh, the old Paramount theater, you know, the Schwartz center at LIU. 
Um, and I've got no credentials and there's a throng of people trying to get in because everybody in Brooklyn, I think, wanted to see that game. I'd never been to Brooklyn before. Um, and so I'm on the edge there uh, of the crowd and I'm trying to get in. And uh, finally, I, I see a police officer. And I said, I need to get in. I'm supposed to hand out the trophy. I'm the commissioner. <laughs> and he wasn't buying it. So finally, I think it was Denise Gormley, who worked in the office at the time, came, happened to be outside, saw me, said, hey, let him in. He's with me. So the officer lets me in. And then some fan says, hey, I'm his assistant. Let me in. And it didn't work. You know, <laughs> Typical Brooklyn guy trying to get in. Uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, and then the crowd was, it was a packed house. The game goes down to the end. Uh, LIU wins, going to the NCAAs. Great story for them. The, the court is swarmed by fans. And just before we start the uh, post game, you know, the awards ceremony, the, uh, the president of LIU, David Steinberg, leans over to me and says, you better enjoy this because it'll never get any better for you than it is right now. And I said, yeah, you're right. Nobody's upset with me. Everybody's happy. I'm going to be giving out the trophy. You know, I'm real popular right now. That's great. That's, that's awesome. All right. So let's go through some of your highlights of your time at the NEC. Uh, of course, the full disclosure is you hired me back in 1998, which is probably your best move. Everybody knows this, right? Oh, no doubt about it. <laughs> um, let's talk football first. Football was just started. Your predecessor, Chris Monash, who was the, the first commissioner, he had started in 1996. Um, you came through. It, we were running a D3 model at that point. There was no scholarships or anything. Um, but a couple of years later, you were able to push through like a need-based financial aid component. And then by the time you left, we were hitting 30 athletic scholarships, which was big. Um, how important for you as a commissioner was this and um, how did you think it impacted the league moving forward? Yeah, I was very proud of what we were able to, to do with football. And, and we had a lot of help from a lot of different people. You know, I spent a lot of time. I, I made it a point, like, like I think almost every commissioner does, I made it a point of trying to get around the league and spend time talking with presidents and chancellors and, and the athletic directors especially. And the schools that play football, as, as you well know, football is a very important sport on every campus, no matter what level you're playing on. It's, it's vitally important. And the idea of, of creating uh, more of a conference brand uh, and, and perhaps competing, you know, at that time it was a pipe dream, but, but trying to compete in the NCAA at, at the time, 1AA playoffs, was something I thought was valuable to us. So... Um, you know, I, I started by talking to ADs and they expressed the need. And then I had some quiet conversations with a few presidents. Um, you know, one of the other great hires I made, I thought, at the, at the uh, uh, NEC was uh, Rochelle Hall, who's now the athletic director at St. Peter's. And she and I, she was doing compliance and she and I talked about how a need-based model might work. Um, and so we talked about it in president's meetings. And, and I do remember the Wagner president at the time, Norman Smith, said, I don't want to hear this subject ever again. He was not in favor of it. <laughs> um, but, but his colleagues were at least willing to listen to it. Um, and I think they recognized the importance of, of football as a uh, motivator to get male students on their campuses. 
Um, and so eventually, you know, with, with Rochelle's help, we, we were able to put together a model that the presidents approved. Um, and, you know, it was a great thrill to be able to get that done. And, you know, I remember a few years after I had left the league, I watched on ESPN, I think, uh, Wagner beat Colgate in the, in the playoffs. And, and that was, I was very proud of that because it kind of uh, brought uh, the whole thing round for me. Um, another moment that I distinctly remember was the first football game we had on the MSG networks. I think it was out of Stony Brook. I'm not sure, but uh, that was another uh, momentous occasion because we, we really did want to make football uh, as important to the conference as it was on the campuses. Absolutely. A good segue, by the way, to MSG. So I want to talk a little bit about TV. You, you really championed uh, our TV package for, for basketball, um, especially, you know, I think when you started it, it was a 12 game package and we, we ratcheted that thing up to 30 games while you were there and it's continued strong, you know, to this day. Um, why at that time was being on, especially in like on regional TV and all our markets, why was that so important to you? Well, I mean, you know, at, at that time, uh, television was, was starting to, to burst. I mean, the number of uh, available networks and regional sports networks were especially popular. And I always felt like if we could associate with, with the, the Madison Square Garden network, which at the time carried the Yankees and the Knicks and the Rangers, you know, that was, that, that was good company to be in. So, you know, we worked by... Uh, Contacting uh, uh, people at MSG, I got to know Jerry Passaro, who was the director of programming very well. Um, and, and we were we were honest. We, we knew that, uh, you know, he, he would tell us, you know, the ratings are not not uh, out of this world, but but they're significant and it's a local product. And so we also were able to get the cooperation of the schools that were not in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area and make them understand, hey, we'll get everybody on the package, but Robert Morris may not be on as many times as Wagner or, or LIU. And, and I think they understood that and they were willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was really, really helped us is that we essentially on our own went out and put together a syndication package, took our games to what's now AT&T Sportsnet in Pittsburgh and to Masson and to Comcast and to Nesson. And other mid-majors weren't, I don't think they were, there was no ESPN3 at the time. They no. weren't getting the reach that we were getting. So the bang for our buck when we do a game that featured LIU and Robert Morris and we're getting it on in multiple markets, I thought it was really good for the time. Yeah, it, it was a significant step. And it, it's something that, you know, we, it took a lot of work. Um, Chris had, had got it started, but we were able to, to expand on it. And uh, I do think it, it helped ran the NEC as a more progressive uh, conference in, the, in that part of the country. Yeah, I think what you're seeing now even is that it's so funny that we started out on the regionals, you know, then everybody sort of has migrated to ES, the ESPN model and everybody's all in. And we, we never went that way. When we, once we started our own digital network, we wanted to keep control of a lot of our rights and um, our fans love NEC front row. And while we are, we do have a contract with ESPN, in the last couple of years, we've noticed that regional carriers were really hurting for content, that there was this market of 
there's they had so many openings that they were willing to take our games also so we've kind of gone back put our games simultaneously on espn3 and regional so now we're sort of getting the imarino model is sort of back in a way and we're still getting on espn and we're still keeping all those games on front row so our exposure is probably is as good as it's ever been but um you started this all like over 20 years ago yeah and and you know, I think I think what what uh, what you and Noreen have done with the NEC coverage has been terrific, and and Front Row has been very successful and and is well done. I've watched it. Um, yeah, I think I think the the conference has done a good job of of building on that foundation. Let's talk about some of the talent that we we uh, that you hired. You have your Dave Popkin still with us, Tim Capstraw still with us, Terry O'Connor still with us. I, this pains me to say, but even Paul Dettino is still <laughs> with us at this point. All talent that you yourself hired. Who knew, right? Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure you may remember this. Uh, I, I can't remember if you were with us or not, but you've probably heard. I probably told you a hundred times, but I'm at the very first media day that, that uh, we set up was at the Meadowlands basketball media day. This was in... Um, uh, the fall, I guess, of 1997. And uh, we hired somebody from ESPN to host it. Um, and I don't remember the gentleman's name, but um, at the end of the event, um, which went pretty well, we had a pretty good turnout. At the end of the event, I'm, I'm just on my way out the door and this fellow rushes up to me and says, when are we going to do a radio package? When are we going to do a radio package? And he's like going a mile a minute and I don't know who he is. And so finally he introduces himself. And of course it was Paul Dottino. And, um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll just get rid of this guy. I'm on my way out. But I took his card and, you know, he, he followed up with phone calls and you may or may not remember this, but we actually, uh, did a radio game of the week on the internet. Yeah. Um, and, and we hired Paul to do that. And then when we decided we needed a uh, sideline reporter for our uh, basketball games and football games on, on MSG, he was the one that we hired. And I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember Jerry Passaro, who I mentioned uh, from MSG, the programming director, he told me one time, he said, that Dottino guy's got a lot of enthusiasm. You need to make sure he's contained. <laughs> but, uh, Paul, Paul has stayed in touch with me every year. He sends me, hasn't done it this year, but I think that's understandable with COVID. He's always sent me a Giants uh, uh, media guide because uh, he works, obviously, does a lot of media content for the New York Giants. Uh, and he's he's been true blue and loyal to uh, the Northeast Conference ever since then. Yeah, he's a handful, but we love him, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, let's talk about some of the other, like we were able to attract some pretty big name talent to work our games back then. We had Steve Albert coming in and doing games. Remember we had Gail Goodrich for a little bit. Uh, we had Bill Daughtry came in, uh, Brian Mahoney. Do you think, was it your intent at the time to like that these announcers would give us really like an air of credibility on our MSG package that people were, people were watching. 
Yeah, I, I think that was a big part of it. I think MSG itself liked the idea of some big names. You know, Brian Mahoney had no experience as a broadcaster, but he had been the St. John's basketball coach and he was with Carneseca for all those years. So, you know, MSG loved that. Um, so I, I think I think what we tried to do was to get some, some uh, people, some talent with some weight uh, who could then respond and, and, and help us to say, hey, this is a pretty good league. Basketball is pretty good in this league, and they, and they play a good game. We even, along with those, we helped uh, drive the careers of Matt Devlin. He worked with us. He's the Raptors play-by-play. -play. Kevin Connors started with us. I think right when you were leaving, he was starting with us, and you know he's an ESPN's anchor now and has been great to us ever since. So it's a, it's a good launch point, the conference. Yeah, and I, you know, that's one thing I've been, I've have been proud of in, in my career was people like you that I hired in the office. But some of the the broadcasters and talent that we've had, I've had, you know, three or four people that we hired down here at the, when I was at the Southern Conference, and they're all working for ESPN. A young lady who we hired as our sideline reporter a couple of years ago for our basketball tournament. I watched her the other night. She did a, a late night ESPN game from BYU. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, people always need those opportunities. And if you can give somebody who's got talent an opportunity, that that's, it's always makes, has always made me feel good. That's great. Let's talk a little about Tim Capstraw and holding court for a second. So <laughs> I, I interviewed Capper a couple of weeks ago. So he, we had a future podcast coming with him. We must've talked for 10 minutes about holding court. So we're, I'm in the midst of digitizing some of the old ones. We're going to be putting them out some best of stuff. I want to um, see that DVD. <laughs> it's, it's a, we, he actually made a tape a number of years ago that, that I've digitized and I'm going through some of the old VHS tapes that we had in the office and um, getting them so we can put them up. Uh, one of the things we talked about was, it was pretty revolutionary for the time. And I, again, you supported our creativity in this. And for those who don't know, it was a halftime segment that would air during our, our basketball games where Tim would uh, take two, one player from each team and he would do his best to really, you know, let their personalities shine. But, it, you know, a lot of times in the end, it was, he, he was, the self-deprecating humor was to make Tim look bad at the end and Tim to make fun of himself. And we had so much fun with the players, um, but some of the ideas really were bad. Like some of them weren't very good. They weren't all home runs, but then some of them were tremendous and we got noticed because of it. And we talked about uh, Tim and I, the Survivor segment that we taped at yeah. Wagner, which Survivor was red hot at the time. And we had three players in there doing, you know, like a Survivor type contest. Um, what do you remember about holding court and, and why do you think that it was so successful for us? Yeah, well, I think the reason it was successful was you, because you you ba basically took care of that that whole baby. And, uh, you know, I, I always wanted us, I never thought that that we'd have success at the NEC uh, or at the SOCON either, for that matter, doing cookie cutter stuff that the bigger conferences do. You had to try different things and you had to try and be creative. So on our broadcast, as an example, and I didn't think of all these things, but I was supportive of them. You know, if you remember, we had a, a 60 second to tip clock that would show up right. at the beginning of the games. And so whereas most games you watch, you know, there's 
five minutes of the two analysts talking about what who's going to need to rebound to win the game, that kind of stuff. You know, we would get started playing within a minute because we didn't want to lose the audience and we wanted them to say, hey, let's let's start watching right away. That was one example. Holding court was another. Um, I remember one time, I, I don't remember where it was, but the two players were in their chairs and we waited about 10, 15 seconds and Tim <laughs> wasn't in there. And finally he races in off from left stage and, you know, plops down in the chair and um, says, oh, that traffic on the Garden State Parkway is a killer, you know, something like that. And it was just just a funny way to start. And uh, yeah, he, he did a great job. I remember I, I was on the court trying to think of something clever to say to him after he got beat in his last game at Wagner. It was, I think he missed making the tournament and it was kind of apparent that they were going to make a change uh, in, in the, the coaching ranks. So it was, it was Tim's last game as a coach and I was about to leave and just trying to think of something to say. And, you know, he was very gracious and, and talked to me, didn't, you know, uh, get upset about the officiating or anything like that. He, he probably knew what was coming. Um, but then when we started thinking about, you know, who would be a good analyst, his name came to, to mind right away. Absolutely. He did a great job with that. So, yeah, it's one of my fondest memories uh, working with Tim each week, putting that together. Um, all right, let's move on to Trenton. Trenton, the, the, yes. the, the, you know, we have to talk about it. So I always say we've tried everything once in the NEC. <laughs> Every format known to man has been used. You can argue against it for 10 years and then we'll do it eventually. Uh, Trenton was it. So for two years, for people who don't know, we moved our basketball tournament from campus to the what was then the I don't even know what it's called now, the Mercer County Arena in Trenton. Um, yeah, I think at the time we played there, I think it was called the Sovereign Bank Arena. Sovereign Bank Arena. That's right. That's right. And it had literally just opened. We were the first just basketball open. games there. So we were there in 2000 and then during the fake storm of the century in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> um, we play at home sites now and it's very popular. And uh, there's I don't think there's support for ever changing that. But I still get asked questions and people who have been around talk about Trenton to me every once in a while. And they, they kind of look back at it as a, as a fond memory. I, it wasn't as fond to me at times because it was so difficult to administer, but in your memory, what, what drove the move and where did it go right? And where did it go wrong for us? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great topic. Um, what, 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 that's one I lost to the, the conference <laughs> membership. They clearly wanted to, reward teams who finished higher in the standings with home games and they were just not willing to buy into traveling to one site and and you know i understand that and it's been a good model for the for the nec but but as you said earlier we we did try almost everything at least once all kinds of formats and so we wanted to give a neutral court it's kind of centrally located a, a shot and and we we you know cut the agreement with the, the, the arena in Trenton, which as you said, was brand new. We were gonna be the first major sporting event held in there. Um, and so, you know, in 2000, we, we hired a, a young lady down there in the Trenton area and she didn't sell a whole lot of tickets, but uh, we tried our best. Um, we played some of the games, we played the men's and the women's tournaments together. We played some of the games at Monmouth, 
I remember the very first games I was at Monmouth and you and, and Andy were at the arena. And I know that was a nightmare, I'm sure. But um, I, I remember Central Connecticut winning the championship on that court the first year. The second year is the one I remember the best. And you alluded to part of it. Um, you know, we, we thought we would do better the second year. And then uh, I remember, I, I think it was Friday evening. I can't remember what round that was, but I know the tournament was going to finish on a Monday, I think. Um, but Friday evening, I, you know, after a long day of, of playing there, I go back to the hotel. We were staying across the river in Pennsylvania. And I get back and I flip on the Weather Channel. And they show a regional map and all it is is white. And, and they were predicting like two feet of snow for the area where we were gonna be. And for the next 48 hours, that's all we thought about was what are we gonna do if we get this monster storm that's supposed to completely wipe out the Northeast. And we, we were, I was on the phone with uh, the folks at Monmouth when it, when it came down to Monmouth and St. Francis for the men's championship. St. Francis of Brooklyn. And, um, you know, I was on the phone with the coaches saying, hey, if you want, we can house your players here overnight after you Sunday night to, to stay in the arena. We can give them this club suites. They can bed down there because we don't know if you're going to be able to go back and forth. And I remember Dave Calloway at Monmouth wanted no part of that. He wanted to sleep in his own bed. So they went back and forth to, to Monmouth. Um, and, and St. Francis wound up not staying either, but the storm did not materialize. Thank God. Um, we did get, you know, a couple of inches and some ice, I think. So we wound up playing the, the, the men's championship game that evening, uh, in front of less than a thousand people. I mean, we were way ahead of our time. We were socially distancing way back then. Um, and so, you know, there's less than a thousand people in the building. Uh, St. Francis has never won the conference. I, I think that's still true. true. They take a 20-point lead in the second half, and it looks like it's over. There's maybe 12 minutes to go in the game. And Monmouth puts together this monster rally and uh, winds up winning the game. You know, it was one of the more memorable games that I remember from the, all the tournaments I attended at the NEC. And unfortunately, a lot of people didn't see it because people were spooked by the, the weather forecast. And, um, you know, it, it turned out to be in, in some ways a memorable night and in others, you know, a, a kind of a what might have been moment. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was memorable is a good way to put it. Uh, I'm glad we gave it a shot, though. Like it's it's good that we tr we tried it. I don't know. In the end, you know, maybe it's I guess it's hard it's it's hard we weren't exactly in the center of our footprint like we were but we weren't we were because we were in New Jersey but we weren't really near any of our schools so um but the 2001 was just impossible to to, to draw anybody and you're right it does look like our our COVID arenas right now um yes but that it was it was it was fun um let's talk a, a little bit about you mentioned it before about the internet game of the week, the Yahoo broadcast internet game of the week. You're a little ahead of your time here. Like in two, we were doing that in 2000. We, we put football game on and, you know, we had Matt Snell um, from the yeah. Jets yes. with uh, Paul Dottino in the booth. Um, 
that talk about progressive that was pretty progressive for the time wasn't it yeah and i i do distinctly remember being in a uh, a meeting with the athletic directors and the ad's talking about this um and and saying though you know that i had listened to a, a couple of major league baseball games uh on this one channel it, it was the one started by mark cuban uh and i can't think of the broadcast.com broadcast.com exactly that's exactly right yeah and and so you, you were starting to see more and more of this content on the internet that you could listen to for free and i said why don't we take advantage of that and um you know it, it got to the point i remember where certain sids would would start calling the office saying hey uh, put us on that game you know so people were listening a few people were anyway but uh, I, as I said earlier, I always felt like we ought to be creative. We ought to take some chances. Um, you know, you could see that the internet wasn't going to go away. It was, it was for real and it was going to have an impact. I'd be lying if I said I knew it was going to have the impact it does today, obviously. But uh, back then, um, yeah, we were able to, to, to do that. And there were other conferences uh, that that kind of followed our lead uh, in trying to get their content out on broadcast.com and other internet carriers. So let's move on to uh, some of the other things that you've uh, you accomplished at the NEC. You added four sports when you were there. We added field hockey, women's golf, women's lacrosse, women's swimming and diving. We took some of our championships. We took baseball. We went to the Sandcastle in Atlantic City. I mean, we were at various uh, different uh, stadiums. Uh, track went down to PG County. Tennis went to Mercer County Park under your watch. How important was it for you as a commissioner to not only expand sports sponsorship, but to improve the student athlete championship experience? Yeah, well, I, I've one of the things that I tried real hard to do, uh, no matter where I was in any of the three conferences, was to get to know the the coaches and and perhaps some of the athletes. Uh, from all the sports, not just football and basketball, certainly, you know, those are the, the, the breadwinners. And I think, I think intelligent coaches at our campuses, at all campuses, understand that the football program is not treated the same way as the field hockey program, as an example. But I always wanted to get to know all the coaches and to give them the best experience I, we possibly could. Um, I was at an NCAA meeting one time when Dick Schultz, who at the time was the president of the NCAA, made a statement that really resonated with me. And he said that 90, I think it was 96% of Division I athletes never compete in an NCAA championship. And I thought that was an, an astoundingly high percentage. But then when I got back home and to the office and started to put a pencil to paper, I realized, yeah, he's right. So, so what I wanted to always wanted to do was to make the NEC championship the, the best experience we could so that it felt like uh, a major tournament experience for the athletes, most of whom were not going to compete in an NCAA tournament. And so, you know, we tried to, you know, my first year at the NEC, we played our tennis championships at a dilapidated hotel up in the Catskills, uh, the Concord. And, uh, I was there for uh, you know, days. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, when, when you go through that and you see what the, the athletes have to put up with, I mean, they were good about it, but it wasn't a great site. So you, you start looking around and, you know, we were able to find better 
neutral options in some cases. Um, I thought what we did with baseball was good, going to you know nice minor league ballparks um, rather than playing on somebody's home field, which which you know would have been I guess the next option. Uh, so I, I always felt like I had a pretty good rapport with the non-revenue um, coaches. Uh, I tried to talk to athletes and get to know them when I had opportunities to see what mattered to them. And I think a good championship experience uh, was, was high on their list. I remember you, you were such a good championship rep that you chased down soccer balls in uh, Johnstown, PA one year, and we had to That's move right. it out of, out of Loretto in a snowstorm. You know, I was so cold at that game. I, I've, told, I've told this to numerous conference people. The coldest I've ever been at, at a championship has always been soccer, not football, which might pe people might think, but always soccer because you're outdoors and it's usually in late November and it's usually cold. So I, I distinctly remember that. We were supposed to be playing in Loretto. Uh, the field was not playable. It was mud and, and uh, uh, just deep water standing. We looked around. There was an artificial turf field that uh, they were able to secure for us in Johnstown. And yeah, just to make sure that the game would come off smoothly, I, I volunteered to go chase some of the balls. See, other duties is assigned, Commission. That's, right there. That's it. That's it. We, you know, over the years we've squeegeed tennis courts, uh, we pull tarp at baseball fields. Um, you know, you do what you have to do. Absolutely. So when you arrived, a couple of months after you arrived, we, uh, you flipped the logo to the to the more modern design from the from the old old one. Was that I can't even remember. Was that something that you initiated, or was that already in the works when you got there? That was in the works. And uh, it was just a matter of selecting which one. Um, you know, when I started, there were exactly five people working in the office. We had a five-man staff. Um, and so there was one time, there, early on, there was a meeting. We were, we were at a hotel, and I think there were concurrent meetings taking place, the ADs by themselves and the presidents by themselves. And, of course, the commissioner in that situation always has to be with the presidents. So I was in that room. And the ADs were, were needing, for a variety of reasons, we were needing a decision on the logo. So I'm meeting out in the hall, I think with Denise, and, and we look at, we down to two selections that we like, and that's how scientific it was. And I said, let's go with this one. And she said, all right, I'll let the ADs know this is the one we're gonna do. And that's how it got selected. It's, it, I don't think anybody ever knew that story, but it was basically her and me making the, the ultimate decision you know, today you'd probably have a three-person committee, you know, culling down the, the options and then you'd have to take it to the membership. Back in those days, it was a little cleaner and a little simpler, but uh, it, you know, looking at it on your, your uh, shirt there, it, it's, it's still a good looking logo. So there's the story. John I. Marino iron fisted the logo through the membership <laughs> back in 1997. <laughs> now we've well, modernized it. You, I, got, I know I know it's been revamped. I got to tell you, I, I did not like the previous logo that was in place. I always thought it looked like, you know, the Chinese type letters, uh, the, the old NEC. I, I just didn't think it was a very good logo. No, it wasn't. So, yeah. All right. So let's talk. You mentioned, you know, this went through at a meeting. Uh, I was talking to, to Andy Alia again. He, he's been with the league 20 plus years, just like me. 
we were talking about the um, the Hall of Famers that we had sort of on the administrative side of things in the boardroom. So during meetings, you know, you have Don Cook, AD at Sacred Heart, yes. who's a Hall of Famer in this conference. John Suarez from LIU, Marilyn McNeil from Monmouth, Bob Crimmel from St. Francis University, Jack McDonald from uh, Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac, CJ yeah. CJ Jones from Central Connecticut, another NEC Hall of Famer. And when I look back on those meetings, um, they they were contentious at times, but there was always a, a, a great mutual respect in the room, lots of ideas, uh, some good, some not so good. But in the end, by the by the time night came and everybody was sitting around, everybody's you know at the hotel bar or wherever, reminiscing and um, sharing friendship, even though they were arguing with each other three hours earlier. And I, I always thought that was that was great. What what was that group like to you, and how did they? help you get you know, your agenda done as a commissioner? Yeah, I think you make a very good point is that, you know, they, they did not look at things always the same way. You know, even, even Quinnipiac and Sacred Heart, two private schools, you know, not very far apart in Connecticut. They had, they had vastly different perspectives on certain things. And, and, uh, but but you, you made it work uh, because they knew that for, for, for the, their institution to succeed, the NEC needed to succeed. And, um, you know, that's, I've always said that's the number one job priority of a commissioner is to build consensus. Um, you know, a lot of people may look at certain conferences like, like the NEC and say, well, mostly private schools, I'm sure they, they all think alike, it's easy to get things done. We know that's not true because Everybody has their own agenda. Athletic directors are looking out what, for what's best for them first, and, and the conference maybe second or third. I always told my staff, you, I probably told you a hundred times, you know, we're the only ones that really care about the Northeast Conference all the time because we're the only ones that work on it all the time. The ADs and the presidents think about conference matters a handful of times a year, to, to be bluntly honest. Um, you know, and, and that's to be expected. They're, they have to be focused on their own institutions most of the time. But, but the conference office presents the challenge of trying to build consensus among what can be a very diverse group at times. 